Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our third class of a four-part series where I'm helping you guys to build up your breathing mindfulness meditation practice. Breathing mindfulness meditation is the top priority in terms of meditation in the Buddhist teachings. For this path to enlightenment, to purify the mind and awaken it to this enlightened mental state where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, you would need to develop a breathing mindfulness meditation practice. Because in breathing mindfulness meditation, we're developing mindfulness or awareness of mind. We're also developing concentration or singleness of mind. And we're eliminating craving, desire, attachment, the way that the mind has this mental longing with a strong eagerness and wants to hold on to things so tightly. So when we're in meditation and we're focusing on the breath, we're becoming aware of the mind, we're becoming aware of the thoughts that are there. And as soon as you realize that the mind is not on the breath, you cut it off, let it go and come back to the breath. What this is doing is gradually session by session, session by session, you're developing more awareness of mind, you're developing more concentration, and you're developing the ability to more easily let go of anything that arises in the mind. During meditation, you'll never get to a point where your entire meditation session, you'll never have any thoughts. That's just not possible. As long as you're alive, you're going to have thoughts. In fact, if you experience 5, 10, 15 minutes of complete peacefulness and stillness of mind during meditation, you'll probably have the thought, wow, the mind is so peaceful. But that's a thought. So you're going to have thoughts. So that goal isn't to eliminate thoughts. Even though we say cut them off and let them go, what you're doing is you're training the mind to more easily let them go, let them go, let them go. So that then in daily life, when you have certain unwholesome thoughts, you can really easily cut them off and let them go because you've trained that way in meditation. And because you've trained in meditation to have this awareness of mind, you'll be aware when those unwholesome thoughts arise, where before you were training, before you were on this path, you were not necessarily aware of the thoughts you were having, and you weren't able to let them go once you did become aware of them. So here in this breathing mindfulness meditation, this is the one thing that the Buddha taught that was just such a high priority in terms of training the mind and walking this path to enlightenment. So I start off this group learning program with this four-part series to help students to develop their meditation practice because it's so important. And then 
in another two weeks, we will move into loving kindness meditation. This is the second highest priority meditation that the Buddha taught. So I'll be introducing you to that and helping you build up your practice in a four-part series with loving kindness meditation. So I'd like to welcome all of you to today's class. Thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing that Gautama Buddha's teachings are something that's important for you to learn and practice. As you do, you will see the truth for yourself that the mind gradually improves. The condition of the mind just gradually becomes more and more peaceful. And you should start seeing some longer and longer periods of time in your meditation where there's kind of stillness or quietness. And you might see that for a few weeks or even a month or so. And then depending on what's going on in your life, as impermanence comes to visit you, you might notice that your meditation practice gets shaken up a little bit. And you haven't done anything wrong. You're not bad at meditation. You shouldn't long for those four weeks where things were really peaceful. Because if your mind is longing for the past, wishing that your meditation was just as good as it was back then, well, now that you're in the present moment, the mind is shaken up a little bit in meditation, you're going to kind of add discontentedness to discontentedness. So in your meditation sessions, don't judge whether they're good or bad. Just do the meditation, do it the way that you're being taught and that you're training, and then whatever happens, happens. Even if you sit there in meditation for 20 or 30 minutes or longer, and you realize, wow, the mind is just super busy today. That's mindfulness. That's being aware of the mind. And you might have had a lot of difficulty bringing it back to the breath. And you might experience that for a week or two or three or even a month before you get back to where the mind's a bit more quiet and a bit more still. Again, you haven't done anything wrong. You're not bad at meditation. That doesn't mean you should give up because last month it was really calm and peaceful. And this month it's a little bit more shaken up. It just means that your mind is a bit more unsettled this month or this week or this session. And rather than comparing it to what you did in the past and what you experienced in the past, because that longing, that wanting, that expectation that just because it was peaceful in the past, it should be that way now, that's craving permanence. So you need to let go of the craving for meditation to be a certain way and realize that even your meditation practice is going to be impermanent. There's going to be ups and downs along the way. And as long as you stay dedicated to the consistency and the long-term approach of training the mind, you'll gradually be making progress. But constantly trying to figure out if you are making progress, that's part of the craving, desire, attachment that the mind has. And you've got to let that go. So just stay dedicated and committed. Stay diligent to the practice and do it each day for two to three times a day for 30 minutes or more. And like I've mentioned before, you need to gradually build up to that. The closer you get to that type of schedule, two to three times a day, 30 minutes or more, that's where you'll really see more and more benefits coming to the mind. So let's go ahead and just open things up for any questions that you guys have based on the last week of meditating, that maybe there's some things that have come up that you would like to kind of get answers to before we actually do meditation together. Or maybe there's something that I talked about just now or in previous classes that you would like to get clarity on. The way that you ask questions is put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. And 
if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and get any help that you'd like by just raising your hand. And then after we have our question period, we'll go into meditation together and then we'll open up some more questions at the end. If you guys have any questions after meditation, we can discuss those there as well. Hi, David. Donnie has his hand raised, so let's go to Donnie. Um, hi, teacher David. Sometimes uh, during meditation, um, there's a lot of thoughts that's coming on, and I do a little bit of self-talk to remind myself that meditation is about the mind, uh, the body, and the breath. Mm, something like remind again and again and again to settle down. Is, is that a, um, uh, something that is okay to do? It can be helpful as you're getting started to kind of focus the mind on something in addition to the breath. So if you're breathing in through the nose and out through the nose and you're having trouble staying with the breath, if you'd like to just kind of repeat in the mind, kind of like an affirmation, like breathing in and out, you can do that. You can also do things like if you're noticing the mind keeps wandering, you can say things in the mind like let it go, let it go, it's impermanent let it go, let it go, or cut it off. You can do those kind of things to kind of get settled in your meditation, but then you'd like to kind of fade that away and kind of try to get these periods of time where you're not doing something with the mind. Because ultimately what you need to get to in order to get to enlightenment is where you can have these dedicated, purposeful, consistent meditation sessions where it's just the body, the mind, and the breath, and you're able to focus only on the breath. And you don't need those affirmations in the mind during breathing mindfulness meditation. But if you need those to kind of get your meditation started, to kind of get things settled and kind of get moving in the right direction, but just don't allow the mind to get hooked to those or attached to those. So continuously try to get, you know, five minutes or three minutes or longer where you're not saying anything or there's no affirmations in the mind so that you can train the mind slowly to get away from the attachment to needing those kind of affirmations in the mind. Understand. And thanks, teacher David. Yes, you're welcome. I had a question. You were mentioning the impermanence of meditation. So would you say as we begin our meditation practice, we should accept that there will be ebbs and flows and it's not naturally going to be a upward progression is that how it typically works yeah from my observation the way that it seems to work with most students is that when they first start meditating either it's really difficult for them and it's challenging or for the people who experience the first couple of weeks they can experience like a lot of improvement and they notice that the mind becomes very peaceful quite quickly and then they kind of expect that that's the way it's going to be, that it's just always going to be that way, or it's going to be like this linear progression because the mind's craving permanence. And it just thinks like, oh, the last two or three weeks, like I've seen all this progress in my meditation practice. So it's just going to be that way for the next few years or the next few months. They don't think about impermanence because the mind is still getting acquainted with impermanence, even though people learn it in a class, even though they read it in the book, even though I talk about it continuously, there's something in the mind that it just doesn't click at the time 
when it's important for the mind to see it. So that's why to awaken to this wisdom, you just have to constantly see impermanence everywhere around you. And your meditation practice is going to be that way. It's going to be impermanent. There's going to be these up and downs, up and downs. But if you stay consistent with it, even in those rough patches where things aren't as peaceful as they were, you just stick with it through those rough patches. And eventually you'll get to the other side of that and things will get peaceful again. But then they're going to get rocky again, too. <laughs> right? So there's this continuous thing. And what you'll notice is that periods of peacefulness will become longer and longer in terms of in each individual meditation session, but also in terms of weeks and months, you'll get these longer and longer periods of complete quietness and peacefulness in meditation and the periods of roughness in your individual meditation sessions and as a consistent like week or two or three or four, those will get shorter and shorter and shorter as well. But you're still going to experience these different periods where maybe two weeks, three weeks, four weeks of peacefulness, and then maybe two, three, four, five weeks of roughness. And then, you know, maybe eight weeks of peacefulness and then maybe, you know, three weeks of roughness. But you just got to realize it's going to be this on again, off again, on again, off again. And it's going to be like this all the way through until your mind is pretty much enlightened, where it completely understands impermanence. The craving, desire, attachment has been completely eliminated. There's no anger, hatred, ill will. There's no ignorance, delusion, a knowing of true reality. And every single meditation session is completely peaceful. And that's how you know that the mind is enlightened is that there's no discontentedness whatsoever in the mind for a year, two, three years, extended periods of time. Each and every single one of your meditation sessions are completely peaceful. You still have thoughts, but they're completely peaceful. The mind is utterly stable and steady. Nothing shakes up the mind whatsoever. So you're not going to experience that until the mind is pretty much enlightened. So even that first, second, third stage of enlightenment, the mind's still going to be shaken up in meditation sometimes and outside of meditation as well. So it sounds like in some sense the ebbs and flows of meditation often imitate the ebbs and flows of our daily practice, would you say? Yeah, this is why in daily life, if you're able to maintain your calmness, you're able to maintain your mindfulness and your concentration throughout your day, it will improve your meditation session. Whereas if, like, let's just say your meditation's going really wonderful for two or three months, even your life maybe is going really well, there hasn't really much discontentedness at all. Well, if somebody that you have an attachment to dies, your mind's going to get shaken up. And that doesn't happen every day. That doesn't happen every year even. So as the various craving, desire, attachments are being triggered, it's almost like a wound and it's kind of like, you know, somebody rips off the scab. It's going to be sensitive for a while. That doesn't happen every day. So you can have these long periods where you're getting glimpses of what enlightenment looks like. Even you can get a couple of days or a couple of hours, but that starts to expand as you move up through the jhanas and you move up through the stages of enlightenment where you'll get a month or two months or three months of complete peacefulness and it's like wow this is quite amazing and then boom something will happen 
and it'll shake up the mind in daily life because of the impermanence and the attachment that's there. And then that's going to shake up your meditation as well. But by that point, you should potentially understand it really well that, okay, this is impermanence. The mind doesn't like it. It's craving, desire, attachment. I'm causing this myself. Let me just stay dedicated to what I know works, which is the Eightfold Path. Let me just stay consistent with all of those steps, including meditation. So even when things are rocky, you stay dedicated to it. This is the same thing like say you were sick, for example. Say you had a headache or say you didn't have a good sleep at night. When you wake up the next day, knowing that the mind is a bit groggy, a bit grumpy, or you feel sick, you're having stomach pains, you shouldn't shrink back from the struggle and start practicing wrong speech with everybody just because you have a headache or just because you're sick. Because when you fall off and you aren't practicing something even like right speech and you start barking orders at people around you, this is putting out harm and you're going to have to deal with that when it comes back. So if someone dies in your life or you're sick or you had a bad night's sleep, you got to always stay diligent and consistent with that eightfold path and just stick with it even during the rough parts of meditation and even the rough parts in your daily life. If you're going through any kind of events, relationship-wise, work-wise, just really stay on top of your practice of the Eightfold Path. You mentioned in the previous class that when we're meditating, we're, we're walking the Eightfold Path, we're practicing each element. Would you say that meditation, in a sense, is training to walk the path and everyday life yeah without meditation you wouldn't be able to practice something like right speech for example you would need that meditation this meditation breathing mindfulness meditation to calm the mind to minimize the activity to quiet the mind to train the mind not to have this craving desire attachment because while you have craving desire attachment you're not going to be able to practice right speech to perfection because the mind still has this longing, this strong eagerness. It wants something. It's going to be pushy. It's going to not be patient. And it's going to have difficulties practicing right speech. And same thing, if you're not cultivating loving kindness with loving kindness meditation, it would be very difficult for you to practice those five factors of well-spoken speech, which one of those is loving kindness. It would be really difficult for you to practice right intention which also has loving kindness as part of it. So even though I'm teaching you guys all the entire Eightfold Path and I have these different classes that are teaching different things, there's all these connections between all of these steps and all of the things that I'm sharing with you that I don't necessarily go into all those intricate details of how one thing's connected to the next, to the next, to the next. I surely do as the program goes on, but there's so many interconnectivity like that, that it would almost be obsessive or overthinking it if I went through every last little interconnectivity. Instead, what I'm doing is just sharing with you piece by piece. It's almost like pulling back the covers. You know, if you think about all these beautiful jewels and it's got this high quality fabric on top of it and you just kind of gradually pull back the high quality fabric and expose more and more of this suitcase of jewelry that's essentially what i'm doing in these classes is just gradually pulling back this fabric so you can see more and more of these jewels that the buddha has left for us 
in terms of his teachings and each one of those jewels they're in the same suitcase they're all part of the same thing and they're all interconnected in one way or another but rather than try to explain all of that to you i'm just explaining each individual piece of jewelry and helping you understand each individual piece of jewelry because that interconnectivity is going to happen regardless whether you understand that it's there or not if you understand each individual piece then all that interconnectivity will be there and support you in your daily practice thank you david let's go to holly in listening to your description of this process of peacefulness for extended periods of time and then days when meditation is just not great and it's almost like bombarded with thoughts and unable to focus on the breath and i've experienced exactly what you described so my question is as on those sessions of meditation where we find that or me personally where i find that i have so many thoughts that it's just constantly that i can't focus on the breath to the point where i get frustrated and then i feel like my meditation is not beneficial anymore is it better to just take a break and just try again later or is it better to just keep trying during that session if you're becoming frustrated at meditation while you're meditating it's probably better to just let that go and just move on and then come back to it later in the day but the reason why the mind's frustrated in that situation is because you remember the peacefulness that you had in other sessions and the mind's craving it it's desiring it it's attached to it so you've got to train the mind that every meditation period every meditation session is not going to be that way so one of the things that you might think about doing is when you do have what you would consider a really peaceful meditation and you're like oh wow that was so peaceful remind yourself it's not going to be like that always because it's usually during the times where you're really struggling that the mind's wanting the peacefulness and when your mind is is more peaceful in meditation that's the time that those pleasant feelings are arising from that so you've got to remind yourself of impermanence when the mind is in that pleasant state is like hold on a second like don't allow this mind to take pleasant feelings in the fact that i just had a really peaceful meditation don't even allow the mind to indulge in any pleasant feelings because of such a peaceful meditation. Because if you allow those pleasant feelings to arise because of such a peaceful meditation, then that's an impermanent condition that the mind is basing its inner feelings on this impermanent condition, which is a peaceful meditation. So if you allow that to happen and you welcome these pleasant feelings about your meditation to invade the mind at some point you're going to experience painful feelings i.e frustration when the meditation isn't that way so it's really good to remind yourself remind the mind that when you're experiencing that peacefulness it's not going to always be that way and then that will help you in those times where it's not that way it's like, oh yeah, I, I knew this. I knew this was gonna happen at some point. It, it's like you should almost be expecting that these things are gonna happen. It's like I share with people, if you're buying a new car and you understand impermanence and you're signing the paper on the car, you should know the car's not gonna look like this permanently. And the same kind of thing when you're meditating and you're experiencing all this peacefulness, you should automatically know and remind the mind 
it's not going to be like this always. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Seems to be all the questions we have for now, David. Okay, so let's go into our meditation for today. We're going to do a little bit longer than we have the last few sessions and just kind of help you to build up your practice. And remember that we're all here for support, for encouragement, and for motivation. Oftentimes, when you know you're meditating with other people around the world, that can be kind of an extra support, extra motivation, extra encouragement to maintain your meditation while we're all meditating together. And if you can extend your meditation session while we're together, then while you're alone meditating, it can perhaps help you to extend your meditation when you're alone as well. So go ahead and get your lower body into position as I taught in previous classes and get your arms and your hands in the position that we talked about in other classes as well, either right hand over left with your thumbs together, your palms on your thighs or your knees or the arms on the armrest. Essentially, your lower body and your hands and arms should just be completely unengaged, like they don't even exist. It's only your upper body that should be erect. This is what helps keep the mind attentive and alert. Then close the eyes and start focusing on the breath. I just like to completely relax all the muscles in the body, just keeping the spine erect and just breathing in through the nose, nice and steady. and breathing out. Your breath isn't going to necessarily sync up with the guidance that I'm giving. This is just a reminder for you to breathe in and out. Breathing in and out. Start bringing the awareness of the mind to the breath. Focusing the mind on the sound of the breath or the sensation of air moving into the nose. The breath is the present moment. Fixating the mind on the breath will help bring the mind into the present moment. The mind can be peaceful and calm in the present moment. If it's longing to the past or the future, it can't be peaceful. So cut that off, let it go, and bring the mind back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out. Breathing in. and out. 
You don't want to control the breath. You don't want to force the breath. You'd like it to be just a nice, natural inhale through the nose and out through the nose. Anytime the mind is off the breath, wherever you notice it, just cut that off, let it go. Bring the mind back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in. In, out. I'm going to do some chanting to ease us into meditation. If you know these chants, you're welcome to chant along. And then after the chants, I'm not going to do any guidance. Just continue to focus on the breath. Wherever you notice that the mind is off the breath, cut it off, let it go, and come back to the breath. Arahang Samma Samhoto Mahakawa Potang Mahakawanhang Apiwate Elmi Sawakato Mahakawata Tammo Damang Namasami Sopatipano Mahakawato Sawaka Sankho Sanghang Namami Napmore Sabhakawato Harato Samasamputasa Napmorhasabhakawato Arahato Samasamputasa Napmorhasabhakawato Arahato Samasamputasa Iti piso mahakawa arahang samasamoto wicacaranang samuno sakatoro kawito. Anu teropo risa 
for any questions you guys have on anything regarding breathing mindfulness meditation or anything as part of the path that we've been learning or anything that you're thinking about or learning something that you've seen, something that you're interested in figuring out how to apply the teachings that you've learned into your daily life. Any and all questions that you have, just feel free to put those into the comment section of Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or raise your hand electronically and we'll call on you to be able to ask your question during class. I had a question on meditation, David. Sure. When we begin meditation, especially earlier in our practice, we may notice a flood of negative thoughts or emotions or painful feelings coming up. I was wondering if you have any advice for anyone who may be dealing with that at this point. And yeah, so it's just like all the other discontent feelings that arise during your day. 
whether it's in meditation or it's outside of meditation, it's the same thing. Just cut it off, let it go, come back to the breath. And the more that you get familiar with those four foundations of mindfulness that we talked about in class on Sunday, that you'll be able to be aware of the arising painful feelings in this case that you're talking about. If you can observe them as bodily sensations and cut them off there, that's like preserving the mind and not allowing it to experience these painful feelings. But really to get a handle on the painful feelings, you have to understand the the pleasant feelings. That's why when Holly asked her question about meditation, the whole reason why painful feelings come into the mind is, of course, craving, desire, attachment. But if we allow the mind to invite in and welcome and hold on to these pleasant feelings, that's just an open invitation for the painful feelings. Because if the mind's going to experience these impermanent, temporary, pleasant feelings based on these impermanent conditions, then at some point, those impermanent conditions aren't going to be there to produce those pleasant feelings anymore. And as soon as those impermanent conditions change, that's when the painful feelings are going to come. So using Holly's example, if during a meditation or afterwards where you feel like the mind was really peaceful and we allow the pleasant feelings to arise and we like, oh, wow, that's so great. My meditation is going so well. I'm noticing all these improvements. This is really great. Oh, my goodness. Well, allowing that to occur, that is not going to be permanent. That experience of meditation that you're now basing your inner feelings, those pleasant inner feelings are being based on this impermanent condition of your meditation being utterly peaceful. And that means at some point when that condition doesn't exist, that's when the frustration is going to come. That's when the anger or the sadness or the annoyance or the irritation, because now that condition has changed. So getting a handle on the painful feelings, you have to get a handle on the pleasant feelings. It feels strange because in the unenlightened state, that's pretty much what we live for is those pleasant feelings. It's like when those moments come, it's like, oh, right. Yeah, something great's about to happen. And you get really excited about it. And that's kind of like what we live our life for. And it feels really weird. Like, hold on a second. Like, I need to cut off that pleasant feeling. Well, the more you do that and the more you see the mind come to the middle with this peacefulness and you get that permanent joy that's coming through, that brightness, that enlightenment that's coming through, then you understand that these impermanent pleasant feelings are really unsatisfactory that they really do not do anything to help the mind whatsoever and as long as the mind wants to hold on to these impermanent pleasant feelings it's never going to experience this permanent joy because as long as the mind is holding on to those impermanent pleasant feelings it's always going to experience these painful feelings so to get a handle on the painful feelings You've got to get a handle on the pleasant feelings and being aware of the bodily sensations that arise, both with the painful feelings, but also with those pleasant feelings as well. There's going to be certain bodily sensations that you feel as those feelings start to arise. Thank you, David. I was wondering, is Buddhism a religion? If you ask me, I would say Buddhism is not a religion. And here's why. The way that I think about a religion is I think about a religion is a certain faith practice 
that is organized by a centralized organization. And this organization might collect up a collection of teachings and then they are kind of responsible for distributing those teachings and ensuring that everybody follows those teachings, oftentimes based in belief, oftentimes based in rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. The Buddhist teachings are not that. There's no centralized organization that collects up all the teachings and distributes them for people to follow. People, if they're really practicing the Buddhist teachings, they wouldn't actually be following the teachings. They wouldn't actually be believing them. Instead, they would be learning, reflecting, and practicing them. And there's no rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. That's part of the Buddhist teachings. So depending on how somebody defines the word religion, and if you define it the way that I just did, which is there's a centralized organization collecting up the teachings, distributing those, and then there's going to be beliefs, there's going to be a faith practice, there's going to be rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. If that's the way that you view religion, then the Buddhist teachings aren't a religion because there is no centralized organization, there are no rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. When the Buddha awoke to enlightenment through the training of his mind, he didn't say that I discovered a new religion. He said, I discovered a better way of life. And this better way of life is learning these teachings, learning this Eightfold Path, learning these natural laws of existence about what really exists in the world and through gaining this wisdom, then the mind awakens, no longer experiencing these discontent feelings. So sometimes when people see that the Buddha taught about hell, animal realm, afflicted spirits, human and heavenly realm, they kind of right away associate it with the religion because faith practices will have that. These different traditions will have some of those type of things in there. And even when you look at like the five precepts, people look at things like Jesus Christ's seven sins. I think they call it the seven deadly sins. And you can see some similarities. But when you strip away all of that stuff and you realize that the Buddha is just teaching true reality. He's teaching what these five realms are because that's what exists in the world. That's the natural laws of existence. He's teaching the five precepts because through learning and practicing those, we don't do harm in the world, therefore harm doesn't come to us. He's teaching things like right speech and meditation and all these other things because this is that better way of life that he discovered. And it was a better way of life than what he lived before. And remember, he was a prince. He was a member of the royal family destined to become the king with lots and lots of wealth, money, and prestige and everything else. So he left all of that in order to seek true inner peacefulness. So depending on how someone defines the word religion, you'll see people out there that will say that the Buddhist teachings are a religion. But if you ask me, and if you look in the Buddhist teachings, I say that it's not a religion. And if you look in the Buddhist teachings, he never ever uses the word religion at all. He only ever talks about improving your life and making better decisions and wiser decisions and how this leads to better results in our life. It's interesting that you point out that the Buddha, he had power in some sense and he had wealth and he had youth and he had all of these things that people are often directed toward in this life, but he still didn't have peace. And it should be a great example for us that 
these things that we may be chasing, they're not going to give us what we're looking for because the Buddha had all of that and he didn't find that until he began on this path. Yeah, you know, a lot of times when there's people like the Buddha and Jesus Christ and Prophet Muhammad and people like this, people tend to put them up on a pedestal and hold them up as kind of like a perfect example of a perfect human being. But the fact is, is that all of these people, including the Buddha, the Buddha prior to his enlightenment, he wasn't perfect. He wasn't the perfectly enlightened one. He experienced anger. He experienced frustration. He experienced meditating in the forest and his mind was sometimes peaceful and sometimes it wasn't. And I'm sure he's experienced being frustrated when his mind wasn't peaceful during meditation, like what Holly was asking about. The reason why he understood all of these natural laws of how to get to a peaceful mind is because he experienced all of these things. There are some people that have even shared with me that they were told that the Buddha never had sex during his life, or he wasn't that interested in sex. But the reason why he knew that having sexual contact leads to discontentedness is because he experienced it. He experienced wanting sexual contact and not being able to get it or not being able to be pleased enough during sexual contact. And his mind was discontent during that time. That's the only way that he would have known that something like sensual desire and sexual contact leads to discontentedness. It's the only way that he would have discovered about the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, bodily contact in the mind, these central desires, these central pleasures that the mind is chasing after. The only way that he knew that this leads to discontentedness is that he experienced it. And as he experienced it in his life and he moved his mind away from that and towards this peacefulness, that's as he gradually gained the wisdom of what was truly creating the discontentedness his whole life. Because, yeah, he was pretty much in the lap of luxury. He was a prince, the firstborn son destined to become a king. And depending on what stories you've heard, you know, very rich, very wealthy, lots of beautiful women, lots of food, lots of entertainment, you know, all the things that you would imagine. He had a, a wife, he had a son, all the things that were told that this is what leads to happiness in reality those things don't necessarily lead to happiness because if the mind is longing for them, then that craving, desire, attachment is going to cause discontentedness. And the Buddha discovered that because he had everything. And it was only when he let that go that he was able to experience this peacefulness. But it doesn't mean that you have to follow that same approach. There's people that are rich and wealthy that are enlightened. And some people get enlightened and then later they become quite rich and quite wealthy because now they're making so many better decisions in their life. So it's not that being rich or wealthy is causing the mind to be discontent. It's that the longing for it and wanting what you don't have. It's that old adage of the grass is always greener on the other side. It's like if you're on one side of the fence and you always think the grass is greener on the other side, then you're always going to be disgruntled with your grass. What the Buddha is teaching you is, okay, be content with where you're at. Everything you need to attain enlightenment is already there. You need the wisdom. You need to to reflect. You need to practice to gain that wisdom. But in terms of what you have in your life, If you're 20, 30, 40 years old, you've been sustaining your life, you've got 
food, water, clothing, shelter, medical care. You've got what you need. It's just now you need the wisdom to realize that you've got enough. You can continue to grow in your career and continue to make more income. But if you allow your mind to long for it and crave it, that's where the problem comes in. Or if you have a life partner and you wish they were different than they are and you really expect them to be different than they are, that's where the discontentedness comes in. Or if you don't have a life partner and you wish you had one and you really crave that you had a life partner, that's where the discontentedness comes in. You can actually attain enlightenment without a life partner. You can attain enlightenment with children or without children. It's all of these things that the mind thinks it needs. It needs this and it needs that and it needs this and it needs that. But in reality, what you realize through this process of the path to enlightenment is the mind already has everything it truly needs. What it needs is this peacefulness. And as long as it's longing for all these material objects or chasing after the objects of its affection, it's never going to get to that inner peace. And the Buddha discovered that because he had everything and his mind still wasn't peaceful. Yes, it seems that, as you pointed out, the, the Buddha did have all this and the fact that he did experience all of these, the human condition, essentially, he wasn't this person who didn't experience sexual craving and things of this nature, but because he experienced it, it really makes him the ideal teacher because the people that here he's teaching like us or people who do experience those things yeah he experienced all the same emotions that we experienced prior to enlightenment too he became the perfectly enlightened one at the age of 35 but up until that time he had all kinds of discontentedness and he even talks about his previous lives as well and he talks about the difficulties that he had in those lives as well even being animals he remembered being animals and other beings other human beings and different aspects of the different realms so once he attained enlightenment at that point his mind was perfectly purified as the perfectly enlightened one but the reason why he knew how to do that is that he shed all of that pollution in the mind so when you're struggling you know think about you know the buddha went through the same struggles and the difference is is that a buddha does it all by themselves i mean here students have a real challenge even with a community even with a teacher even with books and resources and all of these things students have a lot of challenge on this path but think about a buddha doing it all by themselves they don't have anybody to turn to they don't have a book to turn to they don't have a community of people that they can reach out to. So in a lot of respects, actually in every respect, any student who's on this path has a million times more than what a Buddha has. And a Buddha has one thing that really makes them different and unique to be able to actually attain enlightenment is they have a very different mind. Their mind can retain content from this life and previous lives that is just utterly detailed and because their mind can retain wisdom from this life and previous lives it can all accumulate into them attaining enlightenment on their own that's why they can do it on their own because they have a very unique mind very different than the average human being or ordinary human being but in terms of all the other stuff that a student has a student has way more 
than what a Buddha had. So when you're struggling, when it's difficult and it's challenging, just realize, okay, the Buddha went through this. A lot of other people went through this. Millions and billions of people throughout the generations have gone through this. What you're experiencing is nothing different than what they experienced. And if you realize that, then it starts to become more understandable and it you don't feel like, gosh, I'm no good at this or or I'm so good at this and allowing the arrogance and the pride to come in. Instead, just realize like, okay, I'm just an average, normal, ordinary human being walking through life, dealing with the same struggles as pretty much every other average, ordinary human being that walks the face of the earth. And the only difference is, is that if you stay diligent, if you stay dedicated, if you stay determined, this is what will see you through all the way to enlightenment. Because some people get into those struggles and they give up. But if you stay dedicated, determined, and diligent, then you can see it through and just keep on moving past those experiences where you're really struggling. And then when you are struggling, reach out to your teacher, reach out to your community, reach out to the resources that you have, and figure out what you need to do to improve. Because whatever struggle you're having, it's impermanent. It's completely impermanent. So it's just a matter of finding the right wisdom to move past it. Thank you, David. Let's get him a now. Hi, teacher David. Hi, I have a question with um, regarding meditation with the adolescent mind, uh, for the adolescent mind, rather. Uh, we've heard from examples um, which you shared in the past that sometimes very young children um, have um, an easier time with uh, making wholesome decisions and uh, following the Dhamma because their um, their understanding of what, you know what their mind uh, identifies with and conditioned with is not settled yet, and so perhaps it's easier for a younger mind to um, have a um, meditation uh, a meditation right um so i wanted to find out if you feel there's um or you you see that there's more struggle with an adolescent mind in terms of following meditation um, and stillness practice and stillness and would it be because they're sort of genetically more predisposed to making impulsive decisions around that time frame or if um, they're heavily engrossed with the emotional self and so they're not able to um, work diligently on the mind and do you see that that's something that happens with an adolescent mind what i see with the young students that i train here in thailand is that there's a different level of language that needs to be used in communicating these teachings to them, but they can pick it up really quickly because their mind doesn't have as much pollution as an adult. Someone who's in their 40s, 50s, 60s has had a whole lot of years of conditioning and a whole lot of pollution that oftentimes, first of all, the mind is more muddled for an adult in terms of you know, so much pollution in there, it's harder for them to bring the teachings into the mind and their life tends to be busier and there's more relationships there's more stressors there's more attachments like houses and bills and life partners and children and 
all these different relationships and experiences. So there's a lot of obstacles. The older we get, there becomes a lot more obstacles. A child, six years old, nine years old, 12 years old, they don't have as much going on in their life. They haven't made as many unwholesome decisions. So their mind is not as polluted as a adult, but they also lack some of the more intellectual aspects of the mind that helps them to gain wisdom. So that's why we have to kind of talk to them in language that they understand. So they're still having the same problems, which are craving anger and ignorance, but it's just not to the same degree. Of course, they're unknowing of true reality. Their ignorance is quite high because they're a new being coming into the world, but they can overcome that a lot easier than an adult a lot of times. They also tend to not have as much ego as an adult. An adult has had a whole lot more time to think through all their life and build this arrogance and pride and all this uh, measuring and comparing and judging one person or another. So there's challenges for both sets of people, whether they're adults or adolescents, it's just a different type of challenge. For children, I think they have a lot harder time to meditate and be in one place. I haven't seen too many children that can meditate more than about 10 or 15 minutes. That's kind of like where they're usually at. And five, 10 minutes is kind of like typical. Even by line, I think the longest period of time I've ever gotten him to meditate was maybe like a three month period. But now he probably hasn't meditated for a good six months. But what I notice is that just with that little bit of meditation and all the training and the teachings, he still maintains his content mind and his peaceful mind and he can let go of things really easily. So this is where like an adult would need to probably meditate for three, four, five, six years, maybe potentially to get to the same place that a child can kind of meditate for just, you know, a few months and see a lot of progress along with the teachings. So there's pros and cons in both. The earlier that people can learn the teachings, the better, because like Bailan, him growing up with these teachings, his life's going to be very different than the type of life that I led when I grew up. I really struggled through life and it wasn't until I found these teachings that life really blossomed. But that was with a whole lot of heartache and a whole lot of problems for 40 some odd years before I was really able to get into these teachings in a way that really made a big impact. For him, he knows these teachings already and he's going to be able to make a lot of wise decisions in his life to not have to experience a lot of the heartache and misery that I did growing up, which is wonderful if we can share these teachings with our children so that they can make wiser and wiser decisions and not have to go through a lot of the heartache and misery that we did growing up. Yes, that just has a reference to raising an 18-year-old. Um, I did notice in, the, in my example though that there is a strong ego there and um, choices being made and, um, you know, patterns of um, decision-making, which points to the lack of um, wisdom, uh, which is not acquired until later uh, in life. But I do see as a, a strong ego, which uh, differs from your statement of perhaps the ego not being as developed at that age. 
Um, so in terms of parenting, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted to uh, I wanted to find out what your what your thoughts were. Thank you for describing. Yeah, I wouldn't include an 18 year old in what I said about ego, though. When I think of adolescence, I think of kind of like eight year old to, you know, maybe like 12 years old. That's what I think about when I think about adolescence. Those individuals tend to have less ego than someone who's older and someone who's 18. By that time, that's where the ego really kicks in around puberty. That's when the ego really, really, really kicks in. You know, 14, 15, 16 years old, that's like the height of the ego. So if you're seeing ego in your 18-year-old, that's normal for someone who hasn't been learning and practicing this path for their life. So that's why I mentioned that the earlier we share these teachings, the better. And also, where ego oftentimes gets bolstered and supported and encouraged is based on the environment that they're in with friends, with relatives, with parents, people that they're interacting with. If they're in an environment or a culture that has a lot of ego, then they're going to potentially absorb that and make that part of their own mind. So uh, there's some things that we can talk about more about this that I'd like to share with you, but that's completely normal that an 18-year-old would have lots of ego (laughs) but if she would have learned when she was young you know six seven eight years old ten years old you wouldn't see that but that's not what happened and now she is where she is and there's things that you can do to probably help her but we can talk about those kind of privately if you like sure thank you Mm -hmm. i had a bit of a follow-up to manal's question do you think that in general life experience and pain and just the things that we experience as we age, do you think that they can help prepare us for the path in some sense and help lead us to it and inform us and help us just better understand it? Yes, they can actually be motivators, right? Like if someone's having a lot of problems in their life and a lot of struggles, that can be the time that someone turns to something like these teachings in order to help them, but not always. It doesn't always happen that way. But honestly, from my experience, all of that difficulty that I had growing up and all the challenges that I had until I found these teachings is really what prepared me to fully understand these teachings in the way that I did. Because had I never used drugs and alcohol, when I read the Buddhist teachings and learned about what drugs and alcohol does to one's life, I wouldn't have any frame of reference to know that. But because I indulged in those things at certain times in my life, when I read what he was talking about, I was like, oh yeah, that's 100% right. When he talked about all the other things, killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, I experienced all of these things. I haven't killed any human beings, but I surely killed animals when I was working on a farm at different times. And I remember shaking and I remember the discontentedness that I had with having to kill the animals and the feelings that came up because of it. So all of these past experiences that we've had, you know, whether it's with the precepts or using wrong speech, for example, these are exactly the things that we can use as a frame of reference to understand like, oh yeah, this that the Buddhist teaching will be so much better. And had I known that five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, yeah, those situations would have turned out differently. Doesn't mean that you can go back and fix it, 
but at least you can look back to it and be like, oh yeah, I can see why the Buddhist teachings would be helpful and they would actually work in this situation. Because if you've gone around and you've been harsh or angry or frustrated and you've been aggressive with people, you know what the results of that are. Or if people have been that way with you, you know what the results of that are. So when you have those experiences in the past, it can be how you reflect. And that's what I mean when I say reflect, is when you learn the teachings of the Buddha, you can reflect on your past or you can reflect on different relationships around you and see how the Buddhist teachings are indeed telling the truth and gives you that wisdom to make wiser and wiser choices. And then also, once you learn the Buddhist teachings, as you know, you're not going to be able to click your fingers and instantly start practicing them to perfection. So where you have missteps and you do something that you feel like isn't in line with the teachings, because you're going to do that even when you learn the teachings. And you say, for example, we talked about right speech and you know that the Buddha taught to speak gently. But here you are two weeks, three weeks, five weeks after I taught that and you do speak harshly with somebody and it falls apart and your relationship dissolves or you have a really difficult time and you feel guilty or shameful or fearful for several days or a week or two because of speaking harsh in that situation rather than beating yourself up and feeling shameful that you've done that instead you can turn that around and you can look at it and be like wow look how true the buddhist teachings are here i learned this you know five weeks ago and sure i can't do it perfectly five weeks later but i spoke harsh with this person and look at the results and that's where you can see not only reflecting on your past but reflecting on all the situations that are going to occur from now forward and this is building your wisdom and kind of convincing the mind yeah you really got to stop speaking harsh you really got to stop doing that because every time you do it makes you feel bad you feel guilty you feel shameful you feel frustrated you potentially damage a relationship you lose an opportunity to be friends or have a job opportunity or all the different ramifications that come from these things use that as a way to reflect and see how true the teachings really are. Yes, I definitely think that my past life experiences have really helped me understand the teachings in a deeper way, whereas if I had come into contact with them when I was 15 or 20, then I wouldn't have that frame of reference like you're mentioning. It's nice, though, to be able to put a lot of these perhaps painful past experiences to good use now. Yeah, you know, some of these ordained practitioners here in Thailand, they ordained when they were a novice, you know, eight years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, and they've been a monk their whole life. You know, they've never had a girlfriend. They never had a boyfriend. They never had a house. They never had rent. They never had a mortgage. They never had a car payment or a flat tire on their car. They never had a lot of these things. They never had a girlfriend or boyfriend break up with them or cheat on them or any of these uh, difficulties that we experience being in household life. And one of the students that I taught about three years ago, he mentioned that he actually seeks out teachers. His words were, that's been beat up and kicked around by life a bit. And when you've been beat up and kicked around by life a bit, then these teachings have that much more of an impact for you because you can go from being beat around and kicked up by life 
to things really smoothing out for you and you're like, oh, wow, I can notice the difference so well. Whereas if your life is like pretty peaceful, pretty cheerful, pretty happy-go-lucky, you know, you kind of make marginal improvements. You're still improving with the Buddhist teachings, but you might not notice it as much because you haven't really been through the University of Heart Knocks, right? When you go through the University of Heart Knocks, this is a saying, Basim, that we use to mean like if you've had a really hard life and difficulties and struggles in your life, when you start getting the truth and you start applying that, it's like getting a breath of fresh air. It's like being in a polluted environment for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, and then all of a sudden this big breeze comes in and gets rid of all that pollution and you can see the truth and it's like, oh wow, like this is the way that life is supposed to be. And going from that time where life is beating you up and kicking you around to learning and practicing these teachings, it can be like night and day for a lot of people and you can see the benefits much more clearly that way and the teachings become more tangible for you do you think that this is why it's important to in some sense let people walk their own paths because even if they're experiencing heartache or pain and making bad decisions at some point in their lives it's these things can inform a potential future practice and growth yeah like for a certain extent unless they're a child right if they're like eight nine ten twelve years old and even beyond if they're open to it is continue to teach continue to guide them and if you develop that relationship early on in in their life they get used to that and they get comfortable with that that they know that their parents are continually guiding them it's really difficult you know once a child is 14 16 18 now i'm going to start guiding them because they haven't kind of gotten used to that growing up. It doesn't mean you should give up. It doesn't mean it's a lost cause. You can still potentially help them, but it's just a lot more challenging because all of us have learned certain wisdoms through doing things the wrong way, right? That's kind of how we learn, but it's really difficult for a parent to kind of be hands off and kind of let their child stumble and fall. And that's a really difficult thing but sometimes stumbling and falling is the best way for a child to learn this is the analogy that i use that you know if a kid keeps trying to touch the stove and you keep pulling them back and pulling them back and pulling them back and telling them that the stove is hot and don't touch the stove eventually the best thing to do is just let them touch the stove and figure it out you know you can sit there and try to restrain them a gazillion times but there's nothing like them getting close to the stove, feeling that bit of heat, and then they know, oh, now they've got the experience. See, that's a difference. When this kid is going to the stove and you keep restraining them, they have to believe you. And they don't know if it's true or false. It's just belief. And you're trying to guide them and they're just believing. But when you let them touch the stove, then they learn the truth. And that's where they gain the wisdom. That's the practice. So there's certain situations where you got to kind of have to be comfortable with children, for example, and let them touch the stove in certain situations and not just the stove, but other things as well. I can give you a lot of different examples with Bailan where there were certain things that he was interested to do. And I advised him how I suggest that he handle it. And he didn't agree with me. And even at age seven, eight years old, I uh, said, okay, you would like to do it that way. You know, you go ahead and do it. 
And then I just kind of made sure that he wasn't going to get truly, truly hurt, but he was still going to run into the problems. And through those problems that he encountered, he gained the wisdom that, okay, I see my dad was correct here. And now he has that wisdom and he's going to be able to make those decisions on his own now because he's got the wisdom from having encountered the difficulties. And finally, is this something that we can apply to adults as well? For instance, if we have friends that we know are making decisions, they're probably going to lead them to suffering. Do you think it's, it's also a good way to look at it? Like, will this maybe be a lesson of suffering that this person needs? Yeah, you know, one of the things that we kind of grew up with in America is trying to force our opinions on other people and trying to convince them that they're headed down the wrong path and you should do it my way where that's just craving desire attachment that's just arrogance that's the ego this friend hasn't asked you for any help necessarily but the way that a lot of things happen in the culture of america depending on what community you grow up in you know you're kind of made to feel like part of being a friend is that when you see them headed to things that are going to harm them oh you've got to speak up and tell them right away and what I suggest people get comfortable with is not doing that because that's your own craving, desire, attachment. That's the ego wanting to rush in there. And you can actually be looked at as the bad person because if this person is practicing wrong view, which they pretty much are, and you're trying to block them from doing something that they really want to do, in their eyes, you're the problem. And they're going to have a version and they're going to push you away because they want to get to those pleasant feelings. And they think that them chasing after this certain thing, that's what they need. And if you try to stand in their way, you're the problem. So what you've got to get comfortable with, not just in a parent-child relationship, but with your life partners, your friends, your siblings, your parents, is just being hands-off and not providing guidance and advice unless they ask you for it. Because then when they're asking you for it, you know that their mind is open and willing to learn and what you're sharing with them is going to go into the mind and actually have an effect. Otherwise, it's just your own craving and desire wanting to push your opinions and views onto other people. And this is very different than what we're usually taught in certain cultures. And it can feel very awkward to, you know, just kind of sit back and like hear somebody share something and you know they're headed down the wrong path and then just do nothing about it. One thing that you can do is you can say, when somebody's sharing something with you, is you can say, are you interested in my opinion on what you're sharing? And if they say, yeah, sure, then okay, share, right? Or are you interested in some thoughts to consider now that you're about to make some big decisions? And if they say, yeah, what are your thoughts? Okay, now you share your opinion. But just to kind of put it on top of them, that would be your own craving and desire and arrogance and ego. So you've got to get used to restraining the mind and not trying to rush in and save everybody. This is something that comes from Christian culture is feeling like you need to rush in and save everybody. Let me save them from themselves. No, sometimes the best way for people to learn is to trip and stumble over their feet. And that's how they'll learn. You standing in the way, you're just going to be viewed as the problem. And your mind's going to be discontent because you're going to be craving to give your opinion and views. They're not going to take your opinion and views. They're going to go do something completely opposite 
and then you're going to get frustrated because, see, I told you, you got into all that trouble. You should have just listened to what I said. And if you have craving, desire, attachment to put your views and opinions onto somebody and they do the opposite, then you're going to just cause your own discontentedness where it's just so much easier to wait until somebody asks you for guidance or ask them if they're interested in guidance or thoughts or something to consider. And then where someone's not interested, then no need to share. Or if they are interested and you share, then don't have an expectation that they're going to follow what you say because they may not. And if you have that expectation that they follow what you say, when they don't follow what you say, the mind's going to be discontent. So you just got to get comfortable with letting people make their own decisions. And that's where they're going to be able to gain the most wisdom is when we have difficulties and we stumble and fall and trip over our feet. That's where we oftentimes gain the most wisdom. Thank you very much for that guidance, David. That's all the questions that we have for today. Okay, well, I'll just kind of end things today with sharing with you our upcoming classes that on this Sunday, we're going to be discussing the four stages of enlightenment, the 10 fetters. I'm going to be going through those and talking about each one and how to eliminate those. If we have time, I'll talk about the seven factors of enlightenment as well. But last time I taught that class, we didn't quite have time because we spent more time going through the four stages of enlightenment and the 10 fetters, which is fine because a few weeks later, we discussed the seven factors of enlightenment when we got to chapter three. So that's what we're going to do on this Sunday. And then the Sunday after that, that's where we're going to start chapter one in the book. We're going to just go through chapter by chapter. Next Wednesday, we're going to be doing our fourth class on breathing mindfulness meditation. And once again, just extending the time a little bit longer, a little bit longer to help you build up your practice more and more so that if you're feeling comfortable doing elongated meditation in a class like this, then perhaps that will boil over into your private practice when you're doing this independently on your own, that you'll be able to potentially do longer and longer sessions and feel more comfortable with that. So thank you all for joining. Appreciate that you're continuing to be dedicated and diligent in your practice. As you have questions, feel free to reach out and let me know. I'll see you in a future class. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.